Hi everyone, I'm Kane. And I'm Rima. And welcome to KDT's The World in a Grain of Sand podcast. We take a deep dive into a recently publicly listed company, S1, within the life sciences and biotechnology realm, and try to break down some fun facts and some interesting science for you. Today, we'll be talking about Atai Therapeutics, A-T-A-I. And I should say before we start talking, our lawyer on staff here wants us to give a little disclaimer. Certain individuals on the podcast may own shares in the entity or entities discussed. And the podcast and information within does not constitute investment advice and the ideas or opinions discussed should never be used without proper diligence or, or consultation. So without further ado, now that we've gotten the legalese out of the way, let's talk a tie. And so Rima, you picked this one and I want to say it may be one of the more complicated S1s I've ever looked at or read in my life. So thank you for that. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it's an interesting vehicle, a tie is. It's one that I think is going to move forward a lot of really interesting technology. And the strategy has been to own just so many companies within one. And that's made this S1 a lot of fun to read. And it oh, definitely yeah. took me a long time to part with companies, but like enabling technologies and an entire umbrella. And so, you know, for folks that are that are listening that aren't familiar with maybe a tie and, and this whole area that it that it's focusing on. Obviously we know that that mental health here in the United States, as well as globally, is really reaching a crisis point. If you look at the S1 and some of the diligence that we've done at the firm, you're looking at, I don't know, close to six trillion or more dollars a year by 2030, 12 billion working days lost each year. You have just a graveyard of, of compounds and therapies. You know, something I thought was really interesting, only seven new mental health medicines, right? Since 2015, as opposed to 83 for oncology. Just a, uh, just a really, really stark need in today's world. And, and COVID's likely exacerbated that. So Atai is really, I think, trying to focus on, right, development of novel therapies for mental health. Yep. And I think just to add on to that, Kane, it's all of these approvals that have gone through, they've gone through essentially without really an understanding of the mechanism of action of those therapeutics. There's a lot of limitations in the space of mental health in terms of not just treating disease, but understanding what disease is driven by, you know, what is causing depression. I think something we'll talk about as we go through this S1 is there's really a lack in understanding of how to characterize disease in the mental health space objectively. That's where some of the enabling technologies that Atai has brought into their portfolio are going to be really interesting in terms of development. For sure. You know, Atai is, is controversial too, right? So it's focused on an area of the world that I think has long been behind closed doors, had a heyday right in the 60s and specifically talking about psychedelics and neuropsychiatric compounds of different sorts that seem to have some type of effect on neuroplasticity, right? Or the wiring they're in. And, and Rima, you know, I think that you being a neurologist, there's no one better to have on this podcast to tell us about sort of what these are, what they may be, why we were scared. If, if any comments there, that would be great to hear. Yeah, no, well, I'm certainly not the best person to talk about this, but it's something I'm extremely interested in. And as a neurologist, it's something I'm quite passionate about, right, is where are the drugs that can be used for mental health that 
have been tested in humans for centuries? And the answer is it's in psychedelics. You know, there has been a lot more work done in this space. And part of what's been holding people back in accepting this class of drugs as therapeutics is really the hallucinogenic component of these drugs. And it's that altered experience, altered mental state associated with things like psilocybin and MDMA that historically have been perceived as causing actions and activities that could be unsafe. Mm-hmm. And it, of course, they've been associated with overdoses. And I think if we really focus in on controlling that experiential component of these drugs, we can find, and, and the data even shown in this Atai S1 supports that we can treat a lot of components of mental health disease, whether it's depression or opioid use disorder, or even anxiety and PTSD using some of these psychedelic drugs. And we can do that in a more controlled way and essentially convert this class of drugs that have historically been used recreationally in potentially unsafe situations to a controlled, safe environment where you're actually able to see the therapeutic benefits of these drugs. And that's that's what I'm really excited about. The other thing I'll say is we're really good at developing derivatives of molecules. And I think as we get closer to controlling the environment in which these psychedelic drugs can get to approval, we can start to create derivatives that say, for example, don't have the hallucinogenic component that original molecules affect, but do still enable some of the neuroplastic benefits that enable the drug to be effective as a therapeutic in the mental health space. So I think a combination of this drug having been used in humans for a long time, whether with or without the advice of physicians, combined with our ability to iterate and improve upon specific aspects of these drugs will enable this to be a really game-changing category of therapeutics. Yeah. And I mean, I think that, you know, using, we're throwing around the word neuroplasticity. And I I think that's a really interesting word to throw around because essentially the way I think about it is we need a hard reset, right? So something has been hard coded or rewired in a reward system in the brain for a lot of these mental health disorders, or it was miswired to start with and got off track essentially. And you need a hard reset where essentially you can reprogram combinatorially where synapses go. And that's the thought, at least behind neuroplasticity, as I understand it. And most drugs are either messing with things that sit in the synapse in terms of chemical matter, whether it's serotonin or norepinephrine or one of those things, but none are really focused on or thought to totally rewire one's experience with the world. And that's why these may have that profound effect, I think, just so folks know. But a tie is interesting, not only because of, I would say, the gray area of therapeutic development that it functions within, but the management team as well. So I think before we get into all of the enabling programs and, and this the thought around a platform here, it's interesting to talk about who put this company together. Most of the time, I think when we look at life sciences companies, you're looking at a scientist or a group of individuals with subsector expertise in a specific area of the world that have had some aha or insightful moment. And instead, you've got this founder that is our age, Christian Angermeyer that is essentially running his own family office and put this together. Now he seems like he's running buddies with Peter Thiel and Thiel Capital and and sort of folks within that area of the world that we know, but he's a pretty fascinating guy. He made his money in RNAi, smartly so, right? He was 23, 24, something like that, and and recognized that RNAi was going to be important, helped start Ribofarm, which eventually got acquired. And then transitioned over to sovereign debt and was involved deeply within Germany's sovereign debt 
crisis. And just has been really, as you read about him, has been named as if he's this sort of networker of all networkers, which harkens, you know, I, I worried when you think about the Theranos trial, right, that's going on right now and, and the types of strings that can be pulled or put together when you get into these upper echelons of society. But Christian at least has been able to put together a, a platform and programmatic approach to mental health here that I think not only will likely make him and has made him even wealthier, but hopefully has the angle of, of making patients healthier. So we'll see. The CEO, Florian, I mean, Rima, you feel free to jump in, but managing director of Spring Lane, which was a kitchen appliance retailer? No, it's it's interesting. It's not the typical team. Certainly we look at when we're looking at investments in the therapeutic space or therapeutic platforms. But what I will say is as we dive into the platform, it's very clear that the team has enabled the scientists and the researchers who are developing each individual therapeutic to essentially stay in place and continue doing that. And so it's interesting to see how this company continues to build out essentially the financial infrastructure to enable a large pipeline in a very short period of time to exist within a company and move forward. They brought on some very solid scientists, you know, and their CSO, Srinivan, to ensure that there's some scientific direction as well. Now, Srinivan um, was also a retrofin which was Martin Shkreli's <laughs> shop, which like jacked up the prices. But anyways, sorry, just a no, comment right. there on it. You're right. <laughs> I mean, you bring up the point about the, the echelon. Yeah. That team is certainly coming from, and it's not without controversy. And it'll be interesting to see how this group works together just to ensure something gets to market here. It's a tough space. And, you know, we, we talk about the pharma space, of course, as being really high risk. You know, there's, there's a few drugs in their pipeline that are, you know, approaching phase one, phase two trials, a lot of their pipeline is preclinical. You know, we, we talk at length about the risk of converting success in a preclinical model to success in clinical trials when it comes to therapeutics. You add on the risk of a lot of the pipeline they're working on being controlled substances that essentially require not just FDA approval, but scheduling between the FDA and the DEA. Not only is there federal legislation that these drugs have to go through prior to approval, but each individual state technically makes their own drug scheduling decisions. Wow. And so there is a level of complexity to getting a subset of these drugs approved on the market so that others can essentially follow suit that I believe powerful people need to work on. Um, and I'm hoping, to your point about you know controversial figures, I'm hoping, like you said, the power will be used in the right direction to enable something that I think maybe an average group of people wouldn't be able to execute on. Yeah, or could never even think up, right, or imagine. That's really interesting. That's a good that's a good transition point into maybe getting into programs and then we can talk about the enabling technologies behind those programs as they maybe fit in to different things. So a tie is set up essentially, as you mentioned, as a holding company. There are some entities within a tie that are wholly owned. There are some that are these things called VIEs, variable interest entities, which are typically going to be 50-ish, 50 plus percent ownership, where a tie has a majority control over some sub company. What's interesting is although they've raised $360 million, they've only spent about 12.4 on putting all of this together from an acquisition and investment standpoint. So that's that's fairly capitally efficient. Now, one may ask where all the money went, and, and we can talk about that. But in the meantime, seem to have brought on, you know, at least one, maybe two phase two assets here in large markets entering 2021, as well as three phase one. So I mean, we're in humans 
for essentially tens of millions of dollars, which is very efficient. And I think it also speaks to safety profiles as well as a long history of understanding in the specific compounds and modalities that are being studied here that have been put into humans for, for many years. So we can start, I guess, with our programs, which are all different companies. So I hope that everyone or anyone that's listening is buckled in for a lot of names here and a lot of different structures. Why don't we start with Recognify Bio? So Recognify is, I think, their latest stage asset, which is planned to enter into phase two this year. What's interesting, it was the last thing picked up right before the IPO. So it's like their latest stage asset is the one that they actually have the least longitudinal experience with as a management entity and was tacked on just prior to IPO, which I actually, we've talked about recursion and other things in the past. We, we see that quite a bit because you want to show that you have as many trials as possible. And so specifically Recognify is working, well, you can explain it better than me, Rima. You're the, you're the neurologist here. <laughs> this RL007. Yeah, this one's really interesting. This is the one drug in the pipeline that's focused against cognitive impairment associated with schizophrenia. Is a really interesting market and it's a small molecule drug. So it's actually not a psychedelic. It works on multiple different receptors, inhibitory and excitatory receptors. And you know, a lot of the dirty drugs that are used for psychiatry act on those same receptors. And these are drugs that haven't worked very well for depression, but they have worked for pain, like neuropathic pain. And actually this drug was put through phase one safety studies for diabetic neuropathy and didn't show any effect on the pain component, but it actually did show some improvements in cognition. And so while I think the mechanism of action isn't quite solved with this molecule as to why this would improve cognitive impairment, there's some data already showing a positive effect. And so they've gotten through safety studies and that's why they're able to take this particular drug for this indication and get it fast-tracked to phase two trials. It'll be interesting. I think this is essentially an opportunity for them to iron out the kinks of getting through FDA approval and Hopefully they see a benefit in the CIS, CIAS indication. But yeah, this one, this one's actually a little bit off kilter for them just because it's not psychedelic and it's, it's not necessarily a disorder of mental health, like depression, as we talked about. So just to be provocative here, if I was just imagining the phenotype that's going to start mental health related psychedelic or, or neuroplastic company, and I choose something that increases cognitive ability or load. And I choose, you know, obviously it's an important indication here in cognitive impairment associated with schizophrenia. It almost sounds like if you slip it through that way, you may have a nootropic on your hands that could have broad off-label prescriptive effects as well. But we'll see. I just wanted to, to mention that when thinking about the management team and everything here, but I'm hoping that it helps all those those patients with CIS. And then we should say Recognify is, a, is one of these VIEs. So they own, call it 50, 55% of Recognify. That's right. Um, and you know, this is something that we'll, as we go through all their VIEs, we'll note they owe quite a bit on milestone payments still for this drug, you know, 18 million uh, as they reach uh, specific milestones that are outlined within the company. So I think this is where you'll see some of that R&D budget really start to get spent. No, I like that. Which one do you want to do next? Uh, we can dive into the treatment resistant depression pipeline. So the we can start with perception. Perception bio. So another VIE using uh, Circle K, ketamine for treatment-resistant depression that seems to also be ready for phase two. Ketamine, right, is intranasally approved and was approved, I want to say, last year or the year before 
for treatment-resistant depression. Now, it has to be given in a clinic. It can't leave the clinic. And so I, I think the angle here is longer-acting, rapid-at-home, available with a decreased risk of addiction type ketamine. And this is so, and the way they're going about that is this is a R ketamine molecule as opposed to the S ketamine molecule that has been approved. And the reason why that's important is it's a non-dissociative form of ketamine. And so ketamine acts on the thalamus in the brain, basically anything you sense, you don't, you, you dissociate from the real world. You're still conscious, but you dissociate. R ketamine doesn't do that. And so generally that dissociative component is that hallucinogenic component that has been concerned for adverse events and safety for this class of drugs. And so this particular drug hopefully will get to at-home use because of that non-dissociative component is my understanding. But interestingly, if you look, so there was, I guess, a phase one trial and, and you saw some decrease of MADRS, which is a depression score at 24 hours, which I thought was was light. Measuring someone a day later, it's very different, right? Like if I have a hangover, it's gone in two days. So like, what does this really do? What, how durable is this? The second thing is that trial in which we saw that it was IV. And so I just wonder, and there has, wasn't a lot of talk on how they're going to reformulate this to make it more accessible for at-home use. Obviously that IV formulation is not what they're going to be sending patients home with. So. Right. Maybe that's where we'll start to see a couple of their tech enabling companies, one of which is an intranasal formulation and the other is an oral thin film formulation start to come into play. Yeah. They progress through clinical trials. That's what they want us to think at least. You'd hope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. What do we have next on here for TRD? Uh, we've got Viridia. Viridia. owned subsidiaries. The that's ayahuasca the plant. Yes. DMT. DMT. I don't have much information on this other than, again, you have a psychoactive compound that may or may not have some preclinical data showing activity. Um, yeah, this is one of those fun ones that's essentially any third party patient data is of patients drinking tea that has some component of DMT in it. And I mean, that's one of, I think, the coolest parts about psychedelic drugs getting to approval is. There is human data. It's mostly been in, you know, Ayurvedic literature or Eastern medicine literature or experimental empirical data. You know, they are entering into, you know, clinic with some human data to some degree, at least to anticipate what patients would expect mm -hmm. with this drug. A DMT or one of these other shorter acting psychedelics or neuroplastic compounds is going to be a better business model than say your psilocybin or longer acting compounds, because as they mentioned, right, almost all of these need to be coupled with a therapist or some type of therapeutic session on the way out. And so if you're thinking about turnover in a clinic, particularly if you have to have a centralized model or a clinic's even business model, you want something that can cycle a little bit faster. And I think the ayahuasca or DMT side of things may provide access to that as opposed to others. That was something I thought was interesting. And then is this Revixia? Revixia, I believe. Another wholly owned one. That's right. And now we're talking salvia, again from a plant, correct? That's right. And interesting in this is they actually outline how they're using, this is one of the only companies actually, they outline how they're using some of their enabling technologies. And so in this one, they're talking about how they're trying to do digital set setting, which I thought was an interesting turn. I never thought about that. But essentially when you enter therapy, you want to be in the right 
mindset or mind space to accept what's happening and then decompress afterwards such like it's almost like a breaking right of the synapses and so you want that set and setting to be correct and guaranteed like even if i you know just drop the kids off at soccer practice and we're running in for a treatment session come out like how do we make sure that everyone's entering that door in the same mindset and so that was a collaboration it looked like with cyber as well as introspect Yes. And I know I'm excited. I have to learn more about cyber, to be honest, but it's an EEG enabled brain computer interface. And so, if you're going to do everything, just <laughs> computer interface, <laughs> We're really, again, only breaking the surface of what kind of data we can collect from EEG. And here we're introducing essentially a digital therapeutic where we're trying to control using the drug as well as likely therapy, some level of EEG activity, again, without us having fully understood what EEG activity is normal. But I will say, this is not a plug, and so I won't name the name of it, but there is an EEG-based meditation device that I've been using. And it's essentially just a form of biofeedback therapy. And so I do think there's something there where they can start to at least collect the data around what is the ideal EEG activity for patients going into this level of treatment? And it'll be interesting to see what the data looks like. Yeah, man. I can't wait to see what the future looks like. <laughs> I think I, we, we should have hope for mental illness as we, we read through all this for sure. <laughs> right. And then we have, I think we move on now to opioid use disorder. So the next one we could do is DEEM or DEMI-RX. IB, so their Ibogaine formulation, which is different from their Nor-Ibogaine formulation, different ownership yeah. structure. Again, this is a, your VIE, so it's another sub that's like 50% ownership. But I thought it was super interesting that France has been using this thing as an antidepressant for like 35 years or something, and then came out, said that it doesn't do anything, but you can keep prescribing it, was basically how I read it. There's quite a bit of data it seems like here and underlying this. It'll be interesting to see how that trial reads out. I don't know if I would bet on that one if it was me. Right. And it's, you know, it's an interesting market too, because you have drugs like you view prenorphine and methadone to be used with existing infrastructure for medical assisted treatment for opioid use disorder. And so where this falls out in the market will be interesting compared to in indications like treatment resistant depression, where there's literally no option as defined by the name of the indication. Exactly. It's entering a much crap, more crowded space, I think, right. for sure. And then we have cures with a K. That's right. Another variable interest entity using deuterated mitragynine. I don't, probably said that wrong. Mitragynine, maybe? I Something like that. It comes from the kratom leaf. Again, this is a natural extract. I think that's been used for a while. And they deuterate it, where they throw a different hydrogen on it to increase their half-life, from what I understand there. So the kratom leaf, I, I had to go deeper on this, because I will say, whether that's a statement about me or or something else. I knew most of the other drugs on here. didn't know that one. And it's used in Southeast Asia. And what I thought was interesting is clinical data that it's been studied before was the pain scale at one hour in an ice bath. Do you imagine being in that trial? You get thrown in an ice bath and you say how painful it is. I can't imagine what that... Uh, no oh, thanks. You couldn't pay me enough for that one. And so this is... It says it actually comes from a reputable place. So this is a, Cures is a Columbia and Memorial Sloan Kettering spin out and license and sub. So again, in their opioid use disorder pipeline. Kane, as you bring that up, for a lot of these VIEs, I just think it's 
important to note that a lot of those companies have their own licenses for IP and for even partnership for development that come with each of those individual companies. And so it just alludes back to ensuring the management team has the, you know, chutzpah to, to continue managing all of these different pieces of, of all these VIEs. These are all independently run companies and there's there's a lot to keep up with. And so that's yeah. something that will just, you know, it'll, it'll take capital as well as a lot of management to ensure everything continues to run above table. Yeah. And I wonder like if it goes well, if you just absorb the rest of it and you pay some premium or like what the idea is here, do you just keep the holding company model and cash flows eventually come through at some percentage ratably? Who knows? All right. We have GABA. GABA TX. Yep. GABA Therapeutics. This is that deuterated etifoxine. So now a new indication. This one is for a generalized anxiety disorder. Oh yeah. But those Frenchies, they've already approved it. They've been using it. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting, you know, this is this is one I'm also hoping can move forward quickly again because there's essentially there's incredibly strong safety data in humans already with this drug. And essentially mechanism action is similar to benzodiazepines for generalized anxiety, except this is a drug with higher with longer half-life and substantially mitigated adverse events. So it doesn't cause respiratory depression, it doesn't cause lethargy. And so this is, you know, this is another one, part of their portfolio that isn't a it's not a psychedelic drug. It's not going after depression, but it's an incredibly important indication that's incredibly high need. And again, I think it's something that hopefully will just push forward quickly to clinic and enable them to iron out those kinks as they get the more challenging drugs closer to now, later. Half-Life though, Rima, this thing is still dosed three times a day. That's fair. And so, you, know, you have to worry about, you have to question the addictive potential of this drug over something like a benzodiazepine. That's a great point. Yeah. Well, so we should say too, they only own a minority of that one. So 44% of that one. Um, neuronasal. This is, this is just N-acetylcysteine. I know. It's kind of crazy that, I mean, so this is for traumatic brain injury. This feels like a an outlier. <laughs> it is. I mean, this is a neuroinflammation indication. N-acetylcysteine has been used for this indication before. It really makes you wonder as to how they orchestrated this pipeline. You know, how much thought was put in kind of the top-down approach and how much was opportunistic to say, you know, we want to be a leader in the neuropsychiatric space what are all the assets that are in our reach that we could bolster our pipeline with? And they did that. I'll tell that's you that. Exactly <laughs> <what they say. laughs> I think it's that one. <laughs> oh man. And the last one I think is Impact Bio, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so it's a wholly owned subsidiary as well. So MDMA, the active ingredient within ecstasy. And this was for post traumatic yeah. stress disorder. I know that we've seen. I think a lot of different forms of MDMA within the clinical pipeline, there's been some really encouraging top line data on PTSD. So this just may be a, like a necessary component of a neuropsychiatric portfolio, if you will, right now, because I, I think from what I've seen, the MDMA, PTSD, the psilocybin and treatment resistant depression, like top line data is coming out. I think that's showing efficacy. So if you're really going to compete in this space, you either need to own that compound or some derivative therein to compete on prescriptive habits. And it'll be interesting to see like right whether business models move out and now it's who can run those clinics the best because you need mm-hmm. these therapists and things like that. But this one felt just like it was it was necessary to complete the picture here. Recovering everything else. We should do right. MDME and PTSD, MDMA. Yeah. The one thing that is missing from their from their established pipeline is psilocybin for treatment 
resistant depression or for any indication, they cover that with their ownership in Compass, which I thought it was interesting. You know, that's the company that we've talked about at length internally are very excited about. And only when I read the S1, did I realize that they had essentially led their series A, participated in their series B and strategic investors in that company. Yeah. And it's interesting how they let Compass go it alone. You know, you wonder what that discussion was versus maybe paying up and, and owning Compass and, and adding that to your late stage portfolio here. So it's interesting. There was probably some drama that we, we will never be privy to in conversations. <laughs> so, all right, enabling technology. So we've got all these programs and some are owned by us, kind of, some are totally owned by us. And now we need a bunch of technologies to really bring drug development and neuropsychiatric business models to the forefront. So we've aligned six different technologies here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kane, I think the way to look at the enabling technologies, at least the way that's made more most sense to me is I kind of group introspect and cyber together to some degree. So introspect is a wholly owned sub focused on digital health. And, and really what that means from my understanding from the S1 is digitizing cognitive behavioral therapy and remote monitoring of a patient on any neuropsychiatric drug. That's incredibly important. You know, one of the risks that they outline several times throughout the S1 is in order to administer a lot of these drugs, especially the psychedelics, they need patients need to be actively involved on one-to-one care with a therapist. If you can start to digitize that aspect of therapy, you can expand your reach with these drugs substantially and, and really change the game of how psychedelic drugs could potentially be used for mental health. And so that that one in particular, I think, is it's going to be interesting how they start to incorporate introspect into clinical trials. And cyber along those same lines, we, we talked about it a little bit already, but it's it's that EEG-enabled brain cognitive interface where you start to get objective biofeedback from a patient on any of these drugs. So instead of having to rely on subjective measures like that MADRIS score, questions like, are you feeling depressed? Are you feeling sad? And just expecting patients to give a subjective response, you can start to create objective biomarkers of, of changes using EEG that get incorporated into introspect is how I see it playing out in my very optimistic view here. So like we, we see so many early stage deals, some of which may be doing things right. Like introspect, you've got Musk going after this brain computer in interface along with several others, Brian Johnson and others within the kernel. Why bring this internally rather than partner out on folks that like have a lead. And like the only thing I could come up with, on things like introspect and cyber is that, well, if you're actually testing the therapies and you're running the trials, like you have a data set through which to enable these somewhat adjacent technologies that others like these partners are going to want because they're not developing. So like, yes, we may not have a head start, but we're going to have the data corpus that everyone's going to need. And if like building it becomes a commodity and it's just data that people are looking for, Maybe we are the right people to build it internally. I'm trying to think strategically as to why. Yeah, I think that's a great point. The other piece, you know, just more logistically, there is none of these are going to get to approval as primary endpoints until they've essentially run through clinical trials as secondary endpoints, right? And so, being in control of clinical trial development for a lot of these rapid acting drugs, where you get pretty rapid feedback, and you can actually that data set's really meaningful, right? You're not waiting for months before a patient has some effect from the drug. They're going to be experiencing that effect within 24-hour period. That data set's going to be really meaningful. And you logistically, you get to get through a secondary endpoint, give that data to the FDA, FDA to say, hey, this, this EEG biomarker could be 
a primary endpoint in the next set of clinical trials. And, and that's a really important part of development too. Yeah, that's awesome. I, yeah, I mean, having those insights within psychiatry and, and neurologic disease is just unbelievably important. Now, every good company has to have an AI computational bio drug discovery <laughs> enabling platform. And so we've got this in theogenics, which is really just cyclica that is ligand proteome interactions, essentially. Like I, I tried to look up exactly what they're doing. It kind of seems like everyone else. They were able to put AI in their S1. And so that's the important thing here. You've got a couple drug delivery systems here in Inaris Bio and in Intel GenX, right? One mm -hmm. is gel-based intranasal excipients coming out of the University of Queensland, and it's being used with their South Salvia program, essentially. And your Intelgenics is oral thin film for drug delivery. What's most interesting about that one, though, is it already has a Schedule 1 license with the FDA. So to your earlier point, you're not only regulated in who can prescribe things, how you get approved, but you actually have to have scheduled drug developers as well, or drug development shops um, and manufacturing shops that can make scheduled substances. And so the only time I saw within this one that they had access to something like that was in this Intel Genics laboratory. Right. Yeah. In fact, they mentioned multiple times that they'll never own manufacturing infrastructure for any of their companies. And so this is one where you, you just have to wonder how many of their drugs could be formulated yeah. in oral thin film. Exactly. And then we have we end with Cyprodix, metabolomics biomarker company. Makes sense just to your point, right? Where we're we're searching for something that increases our signal to noise ratio in psychiatry and neurology. The proteome is absolutely a place to to start in the metabolome. And so this seems to be basically a singular person at Duke that has a company that somehow is wholly owned by it. Right. Again, you, you, wonder, you wonder what the strategy was here. It's quite specific. It's focused on mitochondrial markers in treatment-resistant depression. And so where that goes to expand other potential hypotheses around what's causing treatment-resistant re depression, how to stratify further, maybe you don't need to go beyond mitochondria, but it will be interesting to see how this develops through clinical trials. Yeah. And they got to put biomarker in there, check the box and the analyst in like one of those pre-IPO meetings. Yes, they have a biomarker strategy. So, all right. So we have all of these platforms. we got all these assets. There are some other interesting fun facts that, that we can end on kind of as we sort of ramp down or ramp out of the, the science here and everything that they're doing. I'm happy to start on it. I, my first one goes back to the people. So I want to end on a positive note and the people stuff is just so weird that it's hard to end on a positive note. So I'm going to tuck this one in here before we end. So Christian Angermeyer is paid every year 39,000 shares for advising the company. The guy's already the founder. His family office is the biggest investor in the company. And then if you start to get into fine print, his family office gets fees for referring a tie to an investment bank of approximately 4.6 million flowing back. So for his self-referral almost, which would be illegal in medicine, Reem and I are both physicians. And then you have the same with their bank. He's getting paid a million bucks for referring them to the bank. And so there just seems to be all this like interlaced conflicts where he's almost trying to spin a story to just make money. Now, like I really, and I think that you and I both agree that the indication sets here, as well as the substance modalities being tested, have real promise and unbelievable need in the world. So we want them to succeed. It just is questionable, right? When you start to see 
money cycling back or kickbacks almost from the management team. And so I wanted to start with that one. And there's also a weird management board thing, right? With a CEO and CFO are the only board members. And there's like a supervisory. Board. I, yeah, the two boards, there's something I noticed. And then yeah. the CEO has a casting vote um, at the managing board level. Yeah. And again, that's just as it's somewhat antithetical to, I think, how, how we feel as a firm, but that can absolutely work in in certain situations. And the hope here is that, that it does. Yeah. And I mean, I think, again, I just will emphasize, I, it's not how we operate in our world. And I don't know what it's like to be uh, in their world. Can't say I, have, I will or ever will. But I do think it'll take a unique beast to get at least a subset of these drugs to market approval so that the groups that we're closer to can fall into line and, and essentially create newer derivatives of these drugs that are that are going to help a lot of patients. But yeah. it, it is it's 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 noticeable how differently this is run than normally uh we'd expect to find. Yeah, and I mean I think that just highlighting that right. So if you look at cognitive impairment associated with schizophrenia, there's been 50 failures, right? And like these are these are massive needs here and and like you said it takes someone to really swing for the fences to start to address some of these diseases where like a lot of smart minds have gone a lot of great ideas have gone and died there's also some weird structural things within the R&D budgets, your R&D budget, let's call it like 12 million a year, give or take 80 million a year is spent on general administrative, you know, in addition to all of the probably as a lawyer, the lawyer fees, man, yeah. look at all, like all of these VIEs have yeah. to take a lot of capital just to, to bring them in to the yeah, almost you could think of a tie as like a, an index fund on neuropsychiatry within neuroplasticity and, and the psychedelic space yeah, I like that. or like investment holding company. And then there's like some weird jurisdiction stuff that if folks are digging in, they should look at company that has jurisdiction in both Netherlands and Germany, but like if anything happens, neither one really has jurisdiction. And so like it goes to some international like tribunal. It's a very interesting structure. I think that I think most American stockholders aren't immediately thinking about when they think about what happens when something goes wrong at a company. Right. It, this is incorporated in Dutch under Dutch law. It's a bit, the business centers in Germany and it's listed on the U S stock exchange. <laughs> thanks. Thanks for picking this one. <laughs> uh, one thing I thought was interesting and they say they don't have anything in place and I'm still learning what this means, but they brought up the point exchange rate hedging, right? So there's this idea that again, operations, a lot, most of these companies are based in the US that they've brought in, but this is the business operations is done in Germany. And so I'm sure at some point, this management team will figure out how to take advantage of, of that exchange rate. Yeah. Difference. For a fee. <laughs> For a fee, of course. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> well, any closing thoughts, Rima, before we shut this down? Yeah, no, I, you know, I, I learned a few things, quite, quite a few things while I was digging through this and mostly focused on FDA approval process. You know, I learned about the Hatch-Waxman amendments. This is just the nerd in me, but there is something in place that can enable a patent to patent life to be prolonged based on how long it takes for FDA approval to be achieved. And so that's, that's something hopefully they'll apply for. Actually for Recognify, I should say. So if you look at the patent portfolio, right, the majority of their patents expire in the mid thirties. So 2034, 20 to right. 2039. Recognify patents expire 2026 to 2034. So very soon here, when you think about the development process, right. And 
when those patents may be expiring. That's right. And so again, knowing that this is going to be complex as it is, it's important for them to be thinking about how they can ensure what's wholly owned stays wholly owned for their sake and for investors' sakes. Yeah. So it'll, it's just, I learned a lot throughout reading this S1. Well, it's going to be really exciting to track a tie and all of the other interesting companies in the space, including Compass that they, they own a part of. And it's been really exciting. I know at the firm here to continue to push the bounds of our understanding and interest in, in areas like this and in, in neurocognition and neuropsychiatry and what hopefully is a perfect storm between digitally enabled therapeutics and novel modalities, which aren't that novel, as you said, they've been around for so long, and the growing mental health crisis, both here and globally. And it's going to be really exciting to learn, invest, elevate great ideas within the space and just had a ton of fun talking with Jan and Rima and, and excited to dig into the next, hopefully less complicated S1. <laughs> it's been great. Thanks a lot, Kane. This has been fun. Thanks for sticking through this S1 with me. Of course. Have a good one and goodbye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Bye, everyone. 